All right, join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this church, your beloved, your joy, your crown, your people. People that you sent your son to rescue. And I pray that you would serve them, you would show them your love through your word today. That we would walk out from here feeling cared for by you. Challenged by you. Called by you. To live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with one mind and with one spirit. Standing firm in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Billions upon billions of galaxies swirl on the tip of his pinky finger. Yet the one who knows each and every star by its name, he cried out for your salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could this be? How could this be? The master of the universe had become its servant. Such infinite humility dripping from his wrists and his feet, his head and his back. As he hung there on the cross for you and for me, he was magnifying his father's actions and attributes, his love and his justice, his holiness and his mercy, and on and on. Yet ironically, he didn't use his, his divinity to his own advantage. Instead, he lowered himself. He took on flesh and bone. He chose, he chose to walk among us as a poor Jewish carpenter. He knelt before his universe like a servant from the lowest slave class of first century society. He emptied himself of all the praise and glory that comes from being recognized as God. He went to the cross on behalf of God's chosen people, fulfilling centuries of Old Testament scripture. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. And now whoever believes in Jesus will be rescued, most certainly will be rescued from God's holy and just wrath do for their sin? Have you cried out for rescue from God's coming wrath? For those of you who haven't, please do. Because whether you acknowledge Christ today or not, one day at the end of history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is master of the universe and of his church. Now, as he sat in prison, chained to a Roman imperial guard, perhaps Paul caught a glimpse of this cosmic Christ come to crush Satan's sin and death, who rose to lordship over every single molecule. And he said to himself with tears of joy, How can I show the Philippians this Jesus?
How can I so magnify his actions and his attributes that the Philippians will be empowered to face everything that's against them? They're facing persecution, causing some to fear. They're, causing, they're facing pride, causing some to divide from each other. They're facing problematic false teachings, which are causing some to be led astray. How can I help them see Jesus? How can I magnify the Master before their very eyes? Think about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, especially in his letter to the Philippians. In both his message and his method, Paul throws everything he has at magnifying Jesus. His actions and his attributes, especially his saving cross work. Paul deploys everything he has at his disposal. His body, his mind, his will, his emotions, his character, his teaching, everything, all of it, is a gigantic magnifying glass for weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus on their own. For example, in Philippians 1, listen to Paul magnify Christ by deploying Christ's mind in how he thinks about the Philippians, by embodying Christ's emotions in how he feels about them, revealing Christ's willpower in how Paul chooses to minister to Philippi, unfolding Christ's self-revelation in how Paul teaches Christ, and personally presenting Christ's physical suffering for the sake of the gospel in Paul's chains for the gospel. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So it's clear in these verses, Paul's mission was to magnify his master, to make Christ's glory and goodness more visible in himself. To do this, Paul took on the form of a servant to Christ and his church as an apostle. This is what Paul meant when he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And later in 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This magnification pattern is relevant for today's passage, Philippians 4, 1 through 9, because it's probably one of the interpretive keys uh, to the entire epistle. Twice in the letter, Paul calls the Philippians, to imitate him and those who, like Paul, seek to magnify the glory and goodness of Jesus. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus, guys who counted Christ and the church more important than themselves, just like Jesus counted us more important than himself when he died for us on the cross. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul exhorts, Brothers, join in imitating me, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And at the end of today's passage, 4 verse 9, 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul wants all the Philippian believers and us to join him in imitating, in in magnifying the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants the Philippians to deploy everything they have at their disposal, their body, their minds, their will, their emotions, their character, their teaching, all of it as a gigantic magnifying glass for weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus on their own. And this helping the Philippians to magnify Jesus is why Paul prays in chapter 1 that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Helping the Philippians magnify Christ is why Paul exhorts the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what Paul is doing in in our text today, 4, 1 through 9, is summarizing all the ways of magnifying, magnifying Jesus Christ that he's been teaching throughout the entire letter and calling them to take radical action. So there's really nothing new to learn in our passage this morning. Instead, today's text is teaching us how to practice and embody what we already believe about Christ so that we can magnify Him. Paul wants us to imitate Him by presenting Christ to the world. And that's what God's calling us to today. The Holy Spirit, through our text, wants you to deploy everything you have at your disposal, your body, your mind, your will, your emotions, your character, your teaching, all of it as a gigantic magnifying glass for weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus on their own. So the question before us this morning is this. How can you and I better present Christ to the world? How can we magnify our Master in heaven? In Philippians 4, 1 through 9, Paul teaches us six ways to magnify the Master, Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. To magnify the Master, stand firm in the Lord. We find this in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So here in verse 1, Paul is pressing this issue. If Jesus is who you say he is, if you believe Jesus really holds a billion, billion galaxies on his finger and yet chose to to save you, to, to die for you personally out of eternal love, then why are you afraid of being unpopular or persecuted for the faith? If, as you say, every molecule of your hater's body is held together at every moment by the will of Christ, Why do you fear? This is the issue. How big is your Jesus? Don't run away scared of persecution, Paul says, of difficulty and conflict because of your faith. Stand firm in the master of your enemy's molecules. Magnify Jesus' sovereignty and his lordship. Stand firm in the Lord of faithfulness. And here's the difference that will make. 
Standing firm personally presents evidence to the world that Jesus masters the universe and he also masters you. Isn't this what Paul's been teaching the whole letter? In chapter 1, didn't Paul illustrate verse 1 in, how his, in his own body and in his teaching when he shared that he was happy and willing to suffer persecution, imprisonment, and possible death for the faith because to live is Christ and to die is gain? And didn't Paul call us to imitate his to live is Christ, to die is gain lifestyle by saying to us in chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That's standing firm and fearless together as the body of Christ. Standing firm and fearless magnifies Christ. Being unfrightened in anything by your opponents makes Jesus look more clearly awesome to weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus for who He is. And it also scares the socks off of persecutors. The second way Paul mentions to magnify the master is to agree in the Lord. We find this in, in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. When I first began studying these verses, I was tempted to conclude that, that this command, agree in the Lord, was a standalone command, separate from pretty much everything else going on in the letter. I mean, if you use a concordance and you look up agree in the Lord, you're only going to find it once in this verse, in the whole, the whole letter. And so I was pretty ch feeling challenged to, you know, about where is Paul coming from with this command? How do you apply it? It doesn't seem like he gives very much explanation um, you know, is he trying to say that we all need to think alike? That we all have to have the same opinion about every single thing? Sort of like a cult or something? But then I learned that the Greek verb for agree in verse 2, phroneo, is the same Greek word for be with one mind that we find in chapter 1, verse 27, which is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, have this mind among yourselves, phroneo, which is yours in Christ Jesus where he's speaking about the humility of Christ that we're supposed to emulate. So the word Paul uses for agree and agree in the Lord, he uses actually seven other times in the letter. And at this point, a light bulb turned on for me. Here in verses 2 through 3, when he says agree in the Lord, Paul is applying his teaching from verses like chapter 1, verse 27, where he exhorted, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel and being with one mind, Phroneo, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in verse 2, Paul's actually applying being with one mind to a specific relational conflict between two otherwise godly Christian ladies who were active in gospel ministry in the Philippian church. 
So we know they were godly and Christian for a couple of reasons. First, verse 3, it says, Euodia and Syntyche, quote, labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. So they had the same mission and the same message as Paul. The Greek word for labored in verse 3, synethleo, is the same word that's translated as striving in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul said for the whole church to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, synethleo, side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is saying that Euodia and Syntyche are doing exactly what he's been asking the whole church to do in the letter. Second, Paul says that both of their names, Euodia and Syntyche, are, quote, in the book of life, meaning they're both saved. They both share the same destiny in Christ. God has written their names down in his book of those who share eternal life, as it were. So these ladies had the same message, the same mission, the same destiny through the grace of the gospel, and so they had tons to agree on in the Lord because of what Jesus has done. And this, this helps us see the verses in 3D, doesn't it? These two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, in the big picture, were truly living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ in many, many ways, as Paul had instructed them to do. But there's this one part of their their lives that God's putting his finger on. They're forgetting part of what Paul taught in Philippians 1.27, the one spirit, one mind, side-by-side part. This one mind, side-by-side idea is what Paul spends the first half of chapter 2 addressing. We don't have time to go through that whole chapter, but to summarize, there you find that you're called as a Christian to magnify the humility of Christ that counts the other believer as more important than you. You and the other believer you disagree with are to be of the same mind with Christ, who in humility counted sinners like me and you more important than himself and died on the cross If both you and the other person can agree with with the Lord in his saving humility, then in God's timing, you can both agree with with each other in the Lord by deploying humility. Even strong and otherwise faithful believers will disagree. But our responsibility from this verse in the midst of relational conflict, as those who are called to magnify Jesus Christ, is to, quote, agree in the Lord. This means humility, humility, humility. It's not fun to hear. Magnify the humility of Christ by sharing Christ's humble mindset. We struggle to do that, don't we? If you Google things that divide Christian churches, 11.6 million search results will come up, which gives you an idea of the size of the problem, right? And out of those 11.6 million search results, I found an article entitled 25 Silly Things That Church Members Fight Over. The article listed things like, how long should the pastor's beard be? (laughs) What color file cabinet should we buy for the church office? Is it okay for the worship leader to be barefoot during worship? I wouldn't mind that. That's kind of cool. Should we use our land to build... (laughs) Should we use our land to build a children's playground or a cemetery? And get this, should we... No, did I say that? Okay. I was like, no. It's okay. Well, yeah, I guess that could be a fight too. Yeah. And in this last one, should we build restroom stall dividers in the women's bathroom? 
And when I read that, I was like, you mean they didn't install them originally? <laughs> Come on, is that a weird application of biblical fellowship? <laughs> so we, we could add our own silly disagreements as well, right? We choose to divide, divide over a lot of stuff. Should Christians wear masks in pandemics? Are pandemics real or a hoax? Should we vaccinate? Should we homeschool? Should we drink alcohol? I'm not saying these aren't important issues, but I'm saying there are silly things for us to divide over, right? They're silly to grow bitter over and to leave the church over. And the biggest area I've seen this text bring conviction for me is in marriage. Beck and I love Jesus. We agree that he's our only hope. We agree on a lot of important things and a lot of not that important things. But there are some things that we really disagree on. But here's the wisdom in Paul's instruction to agree in the Lord. Paul didn't give specific advice that ensured Yodia and Syntyche or Josh and Becca's disagreements would evaporate. He didn't give us a destination. He gave us a path. Agree in the Lord. He gave us a path for maintaining unity of heart in the midst of diversity of thought. Paul didn't say, here's what you should do about wearing masks in pandemics. Instead, he said, agree in the Lord. Paul didn't say, here's how you should think about whether to get vaccinated. Instead, he said, agree in the Lord. Paul didn't say, here's what to think about the best way to educate your kids. Instead, he said, agree in the Lord. Now, what if Paul had exercised his apostolic authority to just mandate that Euodia and Syntyche agree on a mental level? Perhaps he could have just required that they have to think alike. But he doesn't. Instead, he requested. He asked. He didn't command. He said, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And this is because Paul wasn't after mere dutiful obedience to rules. He was after love in Euodia and Syntyche's hearts, abounding in knowledge and all discernment, like he had prayed in chapter 1, verse 9. Paul didn't want Euodia and Syntyche to merely appear unified on the outside while their hearts marinated in fight fatigue and bickering burnout and quarrelitis. Paul was after the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, like he prayed in 1, verse 11. In verse 2, Paul wanted to see unity and peace grow organically from Yodia and Syntyche's hearts by the grace of God and by means of their grace-motivated effort to pursue reconciliation. And that's what God wants for me and Becca. That's what God wants for you in your Christian relationships, at home, at work, school, in this congregation. He wants us to make grace-motivated efforts to be at peace with each other because we are at peace with God through the gospel of Jesus. The encouragement of chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 in the phrase, agree in the Lord, is that there's hope for your ongoing, prolonged disagreements with other believers, whether with your spouse, significant other, your friend, or your brother, or your sister, or your parents. This is your hope. God has called you to magnify the humility of Christ in your relationships, and God has given you access to the mind of Christ, His humility through Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do it. 
So we've seen two of the six ways to magnify the Lord in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Standing firm in the Lord and agreeing in the Lord. The third way to magnify the Master in our text is to rejoice in the Lord, always. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Paul doesn't say, rejoice because you know, everything's going your way. Rejoice because you got what you wanted. Rejoice because you're not suffering. He says, rejoice because you're in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord sometimes, on Tuesdays, or when all your needs are met. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Always is pretty often. It's kind of all the time. (laughs) Paul's rejoice in the Lord always is a joy that Paul assumes Christians are equipped to fill at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. But from a, from a human perspective, don't, don't our hearts kind of object to that? Kind of feels fake. You know, a plastic, religious, smile all the time because you have to appear joyful type, type thing. I mean, only a joy that, that is ignorant of the broken world we live in or that's hiding something broken inside could really last forever. I mean, how can you really do that? But as we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, we understand Paul's joy isn't an irrational joy, an ignorant joy. It isn't a mask-wearing fakery. Paul's joy isn't a random joy. Paul's joy is a reasonable joy. It has a reason. Paul rejoices consistently, even in dire circumstances, because of the definite realities that are true only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's joy is authentically rooted in a way of seeing his circumstances from a gospel perspective and measuring those those circumstances by a gospel metric. He doesn't just rejoice for rejoicing's sake. Paul rejoices in the Lord always, which magnifies the surpassing worth of the Lord that Paul mentioned in chapter 3. So for example, look at chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So right here we can see that Paul's way of thinking is not normal. It's not a typical way of thinking. It's not merely human. Paul isn't grumbling and complaining to the church, this is the worst day ever. I mean, I'm stuck here in prison. Someone get me out of here. No, Paul is seeing his chains from a gospel perspective. He's measuring them by a gospel metric. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's the metric. Paul continues in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul is also not ignorant of the circumstances, right? He knows there's people proclaiming Christ out of pure motives, out of love, and others are doing it out of pride. 
And he admits, I'm stuck in jail. So what Paul says next is the plot twist to end all plot twists. You'd expect him to say, so I'm pretty discouraged right now. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So there it is. Paul is making a conscious choice to rejoice in the Lord always because he's measuring the situation from a gospel perspective and a gospel metric. Paul believes if Jesus is the master of the universe and the gospel is actually true and Christ really commissioned the church to spread the gospel, then everything in life is about the gospel and has value and worth based on how it contributes to the advance of the gospel. Amen? So as long as the biblical Christ is proclaimed, Paul says, I rejoice. So that means Paul's joy isn't an irrational joy. It's not in a religious mask. Paul's joy has a reason. That reason is the advance of the gospel. And this this was Paul's faith in Christ on display to magnify the all-surpassing worth of Christ. As Wolf suggested weeks ago, Paul would have had a constant rotation of imperial guards chained to him 24-7, giving him plenty of time to advance the gospel, right? These guards would have seen Paul pray. They would have seen him and heard him having gospel conversations with his visitors. Perhaps Paul even had conversations with these guards about why he was imprisoned. And those soldiers had to be blown away by Paul's joy. I mean, they'd seen a lot of prisoners a lot of tough people. And they've probably seen this kind of joy while in prison as often as they'd seen a flying pig. <laughs> as a hospital physical therapist for the past 16 years, I've, I've seen and worked with a lot of uh, you know, sick and injured folks in the hospital. And one of the things that was really cool about my job was that almost without fail, I could find the Christians that were in the hospital. They were the ones that were thanking their nurses for everything. They were rolling up maybe in their wheelchair to other patients in the therapy gym, saying, way to go, you can do it. And they they weren't complaining. They had had a joy to them. And and sometimes I would would even ask them, you know, like, how how can you have so much happiness when you have so much going on? And invariably, they would would talk about Jesus. They would point to the, the Bible on their bedside table. They would talk about the power of prayer and, and how God was encouraging them. And, and that was awesome. That, it made a big impact on me. And I feel like what was also cool is that it also, I think, made an impression on the unbelieving co-workers that I worked with as well. And this really snowballs into Paul's next point. The fourth way to magnify the master is to relate to each other graciously in the Lord. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness... Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When I first read that, I was thinking, you know, is that like Spock? You have to show that you're logical? Let your reasonableness to be known to everyone? And I, <clears throat> I looked up the Greek word for reasonableness. It's a case, which can also be translated kindness, patience, or gentleness. So it kind of gives you kind of the feeling behind that reasonableness word. So Paul's saying, let your gentleness, patience, and kindness be known to everyone. Be generously flexible. Be reasonable. 
Essentially, let the fruit of the Holy Spirit show in your life. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He's near. Jesus is close. Jesus even said before He ascended, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And isn't this what Paul was doing for the Philippians by every word he wrote in this letter? As, as we said in chapter 1, Paul was talking through his imprisonment and other believers preaching from envy and rivalry, but doing it from a gospel perspective. In doing so, Paul exhibits a gentleness, a patience, a kindness under fire, and a kind of sanctified reasonableness in suffering. The believers in the hospital I mentioned earlier, weren't they also a great example of verse 5? When you rejoice in the Lord always, Paul doesn't intend this to be a selfish joy reserved only for you. Paul is saying in verse 5, let that joy, that rejoicing, spread by sharing it with those around you. Feel towards others what Christ feels toward you. Relate to each other graciously in the Lord. Paul did this in chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's Paul using emotional language like yearn and affection for his feelings about the Philippians. This is how Paul's revealing Christ's emotion toward the Philippians. And look at how Paul addressed the Philippians in 1 verse 6 with or chapter 4 verse 6 with different ways of saying I love you and I value you. He said my brothers, my, my, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. So is Paul's gospel love for the Philippians evident at all? <laughs> what does verse 5, though, in relating to each other graciously, mean for us today? A couple implications. First, it means vulnerability. If Jesus has encouraged you through Scripture and by moving in your life, Share it, like Paul did. Second, it means watching not only what we say, but how we say it, our manner and tone. This is not my favorite part. Um, <laughs> I was going to get convicted here for how I sometimes speak to Becca or the kids when I'm frustrated. And for, you know, for a while, I've often debated Becca whether the Bible talks about tone of voice. And you can tell where my heart was when I was doing that. Um, but the answer is yes, there are verses about tone of voice, and verse 5 is one of them, probably. You can show grace with your body language. You can show grace with your tone of voice. You can show what you believe about the other person by how you speak. So show grace with the tone of your voice and with your facial expressions. Make it so anyone and everyone can tell that Christ masters your heart and has tamed it with enemy love. And as Bill says sometimes, inform your face to reflect what Christ has done in your heart. <laughs> Third, magnify Christ's enemy love at the cross. If someone persecutes you for your faith, be patient and kind like Paul in chapter 1. Not just because you're supposed to, but because the gospel inspires you to and empowers you to. If someone in the church does something in ministry out of envy and rivalry or selfish ambition, respond with gentleness and kindness like Paul did in chapter 1. Deploy everything you have at your disposal, your body, 
your mind, your will, your emotions, your character, and your teaching as a gigantic magnifying glass for weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus' patience, His kindness, His gentleness on their own. Which brings us to Paul's next point. How are you supposed to do that? (laughs) How are you supposed to be gracious when you have your own issues? Like me. How, How are you supposed to help other people when, when you have your own problems that are weighing you down. Paul says the fifth way to magnify the master is to trust in the Lord through prayer. How so? Look at verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, as someone has put it, worry about nothing and pray about everything with thanksgiving. Worry about nothing and pray about everything. And Paul says, do that with thanksgiving. Then he says, this is the promise if you pray about everything with thanksgiving. Paul says, the peace of God that surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. So how are you supposed to stand firm in the Lord? How are you supposed to agree in the Lord? How are you supposed to rejoice in the Lord? How are you supposed to relate to really proud Christians graciously? How are you supposed to do that when you have your own issues? Paul says, put all the energy you would have devoted to worrying into praying. Don't worry at all. It's a waste. Instead of focusing on what's wrong, focus on what God has done. Focus on what God is doing. Focus on what God can do. That way you can pray from a place of gratitude. And that's what we saw Paul doing in chapter 1. Paul didn't marinate in his own anxiety for the Philippian church. He prayed for the Philippians and trusted in the Lord Chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in the Philippians will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't sit in his prison cell worrying if Euodia and Syntyche's problems would all work out. He prayed, 1, verse 9, for them that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment and the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's what God's calling you and me to in verses 6 through 7. Your child's having behavior problems? I've been there. With all the compassion in the universe, Christ says to you, worry about nothing. Pray about everything with thanksgiving. Problems at work? Worry about nothing. Pray about everything with thanksgiving. Marriage problems? Health problems? Any problems? Worry about nothing. Pray about everything with thanksgiving. When you trash your fear and you trust in the Lord through prayer, our text says God will coat your mind with the heavenly dew of peace and rest in Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that this was one of the secrets behind Paul's unshakable confidence. He's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He said in 1 verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance. 
Paul trashed fear and he trusted in the Lord through prayer with gratitude so that he magnified the trustworthiness of the master as he walked in mind-surpassing peace. And this is our calling as well. Paul was just like us. He battled anxiety too with prayer and praise. And so can we. Which brings us to Paul's sixth and final point in our passage. To magnify the master, imitate the Lord. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So let me ask you a question. How do you know how to judge and recognize what's true, what's honorable, what's just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? Is it your instincts? Is it popular opinion? Is it how your parents raised you? No, right? Isn't it supposed to be God's Word? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Scripture is our source of truth, goodness, and beauty, and how to recognize it. As one of my Bible teachers used to say, all Scripture is God-breathed, and He doesn't have bad breath, and He doesn't need Listerine. So Paul's exhortation to think about these things is a call to think like the Lord as learned in Scripture and apply that thinking to all of life. In other words, Paul is saying, think biblically about your life. But this could spring up an an objection, right? So what do you mean? We're only allowed to think about Bible verses at all times? You're only allowed to robotically think about Scripture? To that, Paul would add verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, use my example as a guide to doing verse 8. If you want an example of how to think biblically under persecution, check out chapter 1. If you want to see me think biblically when dealing with conceited Christians, look at chapter 1 and 2. If you want to see me think biblically when dealing with problematic false teachers and legalism, check out chapter 3. This whole letter has been Paul thinking about whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, and worthy of praise, hasn't it? From Paul's first word to his last, Philippians is Paul's effort to magnify his master who became the servant of the universe at the cross and to get you to do the same. Look at the promise for those who won't bow down to idols. They stand strong in what is true. And they live lives where they choose to magnify, magnify Christ with their body, mind, will, emotions, and so on. Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. If you wonder what impact that has, just look at how Paul conducted himself in prison. Is there any evidence the God of peace was with Paul. Can you tell that Paul not only had the peace of God that surpasses understanding through prayer, but also that the God of peace was with him? Paul's faithfulness didn't earn a relationship with God, but as Paul is teaching us here, Paul's obedience supported and promoted greater fellowship with God 
the God of peace. So finally, what can we take away from this whole passage, Philippians 4, 1 through 9? First, Paul won't let you leave this room with a passive attitude at all, will he? At least not if you truly believe who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Second, the Holy Spirit through Philippians 4 wants you to, to deploy everything that you have at your disposal. Your body, your mind, your will, your emotions, your character, your teaching, all of it as a gigantic magnifying glass for weak and sin-blinded eyes who otherwise wouldn't be able to see Jesus on their own. Third, as you go through your week, imitate the Lord's way of thinking by thinking biblically about all of your life and following Christ's example that was modeled by the Apostle Paul. So I leave you with this question. How will you present Christ to the world this week? How will you go out from this place and magnify our Master in heaven? Let's pray. Father, thank you for caring for us through your word, by your spirit, to reveal Jesus to us through the, through the word. And to be met with so many instructions, so many challenging instructions that go against our basic instincts and our, our basic sin nature. It could, it could make us be tempted to leave this place feeling guilty, feeling insufficient, inadequate, and hopeless because there's just no way we could do all that stuff. And it's here at this point that we, we want to remember the cross again. We want to remember that Jesus paid it all. And because He paid it all, there is nothing that we need to pay for. There is nothing that we need to do to get a relationship with you because by faith in Christ, it's already all been done. There is no place for for guilt to remain at the foot of the cross. And because of that, we know that you have put your spirit in us that the Holy Spirit is, is here to empower us, to magnify Jesus Christ with our lives, to glorify Him, to worship Him. And so we pray, God, for the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us. To work in us. Holy Spirit, You're our only hope to get this done. Just because we understand the concepts, just because we've listened to it, because we agree with it, that doesn't matter. It's only by your might and only by your power, it's only by the Spirit of God that we can magnify Jesus Christ. We're not smart enough. We're not cool enough. We're not connected enough in the world to get this done. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, help us to go out and to magnify Jesus Christ. In His name, amen.